So let's jump in. What makes biblical counseling biblical? We're living in a world today where when you say counseling, it's not like someone says, oh, wow, what is that? It's been around a long time now. And so it could mean any number of things, just like a lot of things in our culture. When you say this word, this concept, there's just a spectrum. Even when you say biblical counseling, that may not be exactly what someone means by Christian counseling or Christian psychology. So what are we talking about? We're not saying we're it, we're the only ones that are right, but at least I want you to know what we believe and what we mean when we say, let's do biblical counseling. Let's do biblical counseling. So, why is the topic needed? Why would we even need to take some time and clarify before we go any further into particulars about depression or marriage or parenting or finances or whatever it might be, that we would establish what makes it biblical counseling? Well, number one, because not all counseling that proposes to be biblical is. Not all counseling that proposes to be biblical is uh, You've got to be careful and you've got to start asking questions. And I learned that asking questions is the best way to really surface where someone's coming from. When I first came here 20 years ago, 1996, to be a part of this church plant with 80 people meeting in Turkey Foot Middle School, I said, I can't do this on my own. In fact, my wife came to my little office bedroom downstairs one day and said, honey, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're not a full-time counselor. You know, it's just like I was just counseling, 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 and I was playing my guitar, and I was preaching, and I was leading the small groups, and I was saying, hello, Grace Fellowship, answering the phone, trying to find nursery workers. She's like, so I get out the phone book and think, well, I'm going to try to partner with some Christian counselors. I can't do all this counseling. Tag, I'm it already for the whole church. But as I, and so I, I went through the yellow pages and just picked out the ones, you know, that had a, a dove, with, with a little olive leaf in his mouth or praying hands, you know. And, and it said Christian this or Christian that. And I'd take them out to lunch. And, and when I wasn't asking questions, we would just have the nicest times together. And a lot of assumptions were being made. But I learned once I started asking questions and said, what do you believe is the condition of human beings by nature? Number one answer I heard, good, good, naturally good. That's not what the Bible teaches. And if your starting point and your premise for what you actually believe is not biblical, what are the hopes that you will come up with biblical solutions? And when I would ask questions like, now help me understand where you'd be coming from on divorce, marriage, and remarriage. And they would say things like, you know, I do believe, I do believe the Bible gives us places where there's biblical divorce. So I'm not that no divorce at all period guy. I believe the Bible gives us some, some exceptions but not what I would hear from them. They would answer back and say, well, now, God wouldn't want anyone to stay in a marriage that was less than fulfilling to them if they were not happy. Jesus loves them so much. He would want them to be happy. So, and this is someone with the dove and the olive branch and the praying hands in the yellow pages, but they were more tuned in to psychology than theology. And so after a while, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm struggling to find someone that I can partner with. Now, don't hear me saying there's nobody out there that's doing good Christian or biblical counseling that you could use. I I don't believe that. Do hear me saying there's not as many as you think, and you better ask questions to find out, are they really going by the Bible? Why else should we do this? you got to ask, what makes it biblical before you just put that word biblical in front of it? Well, number two, because all of us need to be growing as biblical counselors. We all need to be growing as biblical counselors. Too many people think that a biblical counselor plus time just equals a better, better biblical counselor. Like cheese gets better through the years or wine gets better as it ages. and Not necessarily so. We all want to be growing as a biblical counselor. And to do that, we need to think, well, what makes my my understanding of counseling biblical. Where should I be turning to to learn more? What well should I be dipping from? We live in a culture and a land, I believe, that has a huge blessing and there's an Achilles heel to it, a huge curse. We have access to so much information. And I don't know whether you realize this or not, it's not all good. It's not all biblical. More and more I find even that I'm reading books. I love to read, so I'll read like, 35 to 50 books a year. But more and more, I'm reading more and more books, and I'm just like, it's not a great book. It's not a great book. It's not a great book. Could have been a pamphlet. It's just like, it. I mean, just books galore, but it doesn't mean they're all good. 
And every book or blog or website or article or whatever that has the word biblical counseling or Christian counseling in front of it doesn't necessarily mean it is. What makes it biblical? Number three, we need to talk about this from the beginning because all of us need caution in our cutting and pasting. Now, what I mean by this is there's no sin in this. I'm always just learning from a book or from a workshop like this or listening to a sermon and grabbing some of that stuff and pulling it into my own teaching and doing things with it. And we live in a day where you can do that readily. But what is going to be your filter through which as you read stuff and hear stuff and sit in workshops, you're going to decide, does that just resonate with me? And I think, I, or, or I like her. I like how she communicates. Well, great. But is what she's saying Biblical. I felt like I connected with him. Okay, great. You're going to need to know what should be my filter through which I'm going to make decisions as to do I keep that or do I throw that out? Now, I hope you don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not that guy because I think we shouldn't be this way unless I can agree with everything that person says or that book. Throw it out. I learn from people that I disagree with on some issues. And someone can be right here and wrong here. But the Bible talks about discernment. I want to have discernment to know how do I know as, you're, as I'm doing my cutting and pasting to put together a theology. I love Charles Spurgeon who said, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. And what he meant by that is he, he read commentaries and books. Oh man, he read more books than I, I, he probably read in a year what I'm going to read in a lifetime. He was brilliant. He was amazing. And I've read, I don't know if it's true or if it's just urban legend, that in preparation for his Sunday sermon, he would lie in his library on a couch with the the lights dimmed. And he had had these countertops all the way around. And he would have all his commentaries open to the passage he was going to preach on. And as he, he would lie there, he would have his wife read aloud from all these commentaries. What a good woman. And then he would just take those thoughts and let them gesticulate. So he's saying, I milk a lot of cows. You know, you read other people and you you read other blogs and you read other books and you listen to people. Is this going to help you? Huh? Think right here. Teats right here. I'm milking. But I'm going to take this. And you're going to take this. You may not agree with everything Brad Bigney says or Stuart Scott who's up next or or overall this counseling conference. But you're going to take some of it, Right? And you're going to put together what you think. I hope it'll be biblical. All of us are doing that to one degree or another. That's why we need to talk about what makes counseling biblical. All right. Number one. Let's answer that question then. What makes counseling biblical? When it recognizes the Bible as foundational. When it recognizes the Bible as foundational, folks, not an add-on, not something on the fringe. Here we are doing counseling, and we've got a model that we grabbed from somewhere else. And oh, by the way, there's a Bible lying on the coffee table or the desk, kind of like a hood ornament. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like, you don't see it that often in restaurants anymore, but when I was a little boy growing up, my grandparents would take me out to a restaurant. That's the only time it happened. There was always this thing on the side of the plate that I thought was ghastly, parsley. It's like, if you eat that, not good. It's just kind of there as a decoration. Who eats parsley, right? And that's how sometimes the Bible is treated. It's just this thing on the side of the plate. The plate itself is really something else. But we got this here. That's not what we want to do with biblical counseling. It needs to be foundational. So our, our model and our theology and our understanding of people and anthropology and how people really change and how we're in relationship to God and what does sin mean and what has sin done to us and all those factors need to be not fringe and subpoints, but main points and foundational. It's biblical counseling when it recognizes the Bible as foundational. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to build for you a pyramid of sorts and show you what I'm talking about. When, when it recognizes the Bible as foundational, I'll give you what you, uh, we call our theological pyramid and walk you through it. It's when you treat the Bible and you recognize the Bible, that the Bible is the canon of Scripture. God gave us some books that are inspired, that are not like books by Jay Adams or books by Brad Bigner or books by Stuart Scott. We're grateful for other good books, but the Bible is inspired. So when it recognizes the canon of Scripture, that when I'm reading Isaiah like I was this morning, and when I'm reading 
Oh, where was I in the New Testament? Second uh, Corinthians, like it was? That's not like when I pick up right now, I'm reading a biography on J.C. Ryle. And right now I'm b- reading a, a biography about John Muir, the naturalist, and, and out there. Love it. But it's not inspired. That's not a word from God. What makes biblical counseling biblical is when it recognizes this book is not just a great book that will inspire you. Make sure it's on your shelf and you pick it up occasionally. But when you say, God gave us a book. He only gave us one book. The Bible. When it recognizes the canon of scripture. And so that means, guess what? There may be some things you read or see that you say, ooh, I wouldn't have thought of that. That doesn't resonate with me. In fact, it rubs my flesh the wrong way, kind of like rubbing the fur on a dog the wrong direction. Am I going to throw that out? Well, not if you believe Scripture is inspired. I'm to submit myself to what it said, not pick and choose what I want it to say what I like. On top of that, biblical counseling is truly biblical when you understand some hermeneutics that the Bible, you're using it with the proper hermeneutics. Now, don't, don't get scared and think, oh, I'm so out of here. It's, it's, it's the first session. He used a big word. All that means is the study of Scripture, a proper study of Scripture, which is important to understand how do we interpret Scripture. For example, I hope this doesn't throw you for a loop. There are 66 books in the Bible, and you should not read them all the same way. Please submit to all of them as Scripture and as God's inspired word, But he intended you to understand some of it's poetical, some of it's historical, some of it's didactic. So when you are reading something, for instance, some of it's wisdom. So give you an example, Proverbs. This is going to throw some of you on the whole parenting thing. I'm going to rock your little world. Proverbs 22, 16, train up a child the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Boom, baby. If we see kids going wild... We don't even have to know you, what you did in your home, anything about you. I can go backwards and conclude you didn't train them up. Look at them because there's a promise. There's a money-back guarantee. It's a general principle, right? Why Why don't we do that with other verses? That's the one that gets treated that way. Why don't we do that with other verses in Proverbs? You know the verse that says, He who works with a diligent hand will stand before kings and not be in obscurity. Is that generally true that when you're a hard worker and you're good at what you do, you rise towards the front? Yep. You know anybody that's gotten the shaft, that's gotten passed by? Yes. I could go on and on with the Proverbs. So don't be disheartened and think, Good grief, does it not matter what I do with my kids? Yes, it matters. But they... Are created in the image of God and they have to choose how to respond to what you're putting in front of them. Is it more likely that they will choose to follow God as you train them up? Yes. Is it a money back guarantee formula? Do this, sing hymns, have family time, have devotions every day, and bam, you'll be guaranteed godly kids? No. General principle comes out of Proverbs. Wisdom. Now, there, now some of you aren't going to hear anything else. You're just so disturbed. Exegesis. Exegesis. So we've got the canon of Scripture. We believe it's God's Word like no other. Then we say, let's interpret it rightly. Let's understand what book in the Bible we're reading and how we should interpret this. And then on that, let's begin to formulate some exegesis. All that means, again, you don't have to think, oh, exegesis. Just, you can hear it, right? We got some signs at the back. Exit. Exegesis means you want to draw out of Scripture what it's saying. Eisegesis is when you already know what you believe and you're looking for a verse to prove it. Somebody say, ow. Are we guilty of that? Yeah. And it's hard since we're sinful. We know what we want to believe, but we're not, we don't want to do that. We want to let Scripture speak for itself. Exegesis. So as I re- and let me, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself because that leads to the next one. Well, let me give you this quote first. I know that theology is not stylish. So even as I talk about theology this way, an exegesis, and you think, well, Brad, you went to seminary, that's for you. No, it's for every believer to understand how to interpret Scripture, to to exercise proper exegesis as you 
read. I know that theology is not stylish in this generation of Christians. When our friends think of going for help for their souls, they usually think in terms of their feelings and egos, their innerness, their hearts, and quite naturally gravitate to counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists, something along the lines of the therapeutic. But in matters of the Christian life, especially prayer, it is the theologian we want at our side to help us start with God. Not just end up with God as a court of last resort. We Christians need theologians far more than we need psychologists. Now don't hear me saying there's no place for someone who's studied hard to understand what makes people tick and why do people do what they do. I'm fascinated by it as well. But folks, who better than our creator to help us know what makes us tick and why we do what we do? This is a book that does that. The word psychology even is taken from Uh, from suke, which means soul, and lagos, which means a word, a word about the soul. Folks, who more than God would have a great word about the soul? He created us. He knows why we... The Bible speaks of motives and desires and intents of the heart. The Bible is not a superficial book. If you think it is, you're wrong. It is not a superficial book. This, this book goes after the heart, and it does speak to levels that are below the surface. On top of exegesis, letting Scripture speak for itself, you want to begin to build a biblical theology. By that I mean exegesis. You might be digging into one passage, four verses, and saying, what, what do those words actually mean? And I might do some word studies and look some things up. Whereas biblical theology is the big picture. It's the 36,000 feet view Where you say, you know what, I don't want to just dive in and really know the book of 1 Peter. I do. We're in that right now in small group. It's a great book for today. But I also want to constantly be getting a better better understanding. What's the whole tenor of Scripture about? What's What's the big theme? If you miss out on and you don't understand some of the big themes of Scripture that run from Genesis to Revelation, like, for instance... That God does what he does for his own, say it, glory. You'll struggle to understand particulars, especially particulars of where you might be in life at a certain point. We need the big picture as well as specifics. Now, again, this may throw you, but if you're in our church family, then you've heard me say this relentlessly. And I'm going to say it till Jesus returns. You've got to read the Bible. How much of it? Oh, say it again sweet to my ears all of it all of it is all of it as easy to read i'll admit it no which is why i use the john macarthur through the bible in a year bible highly recommend it i'm on my 10th year where you get a little of the old testament you get a little of the new testament oh yes today and a little bit of a psalm and two verses from proverbs and if you track with what he has you read each day like what i read today You'll go through the Bible in a year. Girl, I grew up in the church and I heard, read the Bible. And I would start in Genesis. Hello. March my way through some great stories. Exodus, I'm hanging in there. Numbers, oh, this is kind of hard. Leviticus, we're so done. (laughs) Right? It's like, if I see you tear the skin off one more thing and take the kidney to the side and blah, 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 blah. You've said this already. It's like, whoo. Now, but listen to me. Listen to me. Biblical theology. Those of you who have never read Leviticus, and not often enough, when you read Hebrews in the New Testament, it does not pop. Because it only pops when you know Leviticus. And in Hebrews, he keeps 13 times in my New King James. He says, better. We got a better mediator, a better savior, a better high priest, a better inheritance, a better, better, better than what? I don't know. I don't read my Old Testament. If you read Leviticus, you'll know better than that. Huh? Yes, better than that. That was the old covenant. And oh, thank you, God. That, that, that's why when you get to Hebrews and you get to Hebrews 4, it's like we can come boldly to the throne of grace, not sheepishly, to find mercy to help in time of need. Huh? They weren't doing that. And you say, oh, I've got a high priest who can sympathize with me that was tempted in all points just like us, yet without sin. All of it just jumps off the page if you know your Old Testament. So be wor- don't hear me saying you've got to read the whole Bible every year. Do hear me say it. Do at least once in a lifetime. 
maybe every three years or four years or so. And here's, here's a tip. You can take the John MacArthur through the Bible in a year. My sweet wife does it this way. And go through it in two. You just stop and put a little post-it in there saying, I'm not reading everything I was supposed to read today. Oh, you're going to go to purgatory for that. No, you can do that. You're allowed to do that. Who cares? You're still getting through the Bible. And if you decide that's too much to read in one day, slow it down. But you'll begin to build a biblical theology. You will start to see themes. And every year, every year, I'm 53 now, I am still learning and seeing. It's like, oh, look at that. And I'm making a connection. Biblical theology. On top of that, systematic theology. Systematic theology is not going all the way through and looking for themes. It's where you, you track with one subject and say, what is everything the Bible says about marriage? Let's find all of it in Scripture. What is everything the Bible says about Christ's deity? Let's find all those verses about the Holy Spirit. We'd go to John 16 and we'd also grab some stuff in Acts and that's systematic theology, where you're systematically trying to say, what is every, every place the Bible speaks on that subject? Let's pull it together and draw some conclusions. So we've got canon of Scripture. We understand it is our authority, and it's from God. It's like no other book. We're trying to interpret it rightly according to what genre we're reading at that moment. And we, on top of that, we want to let it speak, not come with preconceived gnosis, exegesis, and then we want... Big picture biblical theology, and then we want to do some systematic theology. So I'm, I'm constantly, this Bible right here, I'm writing in this all the time, where I'm thinking, that, that, there's another verse over here for that. I'm building a systematic theology in my own Bible. What are the other verses that speak to that? This Bible right here is actually a new one. But the Bible that I've had for 33 years, since I had hair swept back. That's right, I had hair. I haven't always looked like this. I got it in 1983. I was single. Thomas Nelson landed on campus and gave them out for free. That works. And I've been using it ever since. It's been rebound three times. It couldn't be rebound anymore. So I had my assistant. It's so marked up. I had my assistant Google the World Wide Web to find that exact Bible. Yes, I'm wired that way. I am that guy you've heard about. And she found one. The same version from 1983. That means all the words are where I know they are. I, you, know? you know how you know something's at the top right-hand page? I want that to always be till Jesus comes. I'm not starting over with a new Bible. Oh, no, no, no. She found this for $7. Then it gets better than that. I got 33 years worth of notes in that other one. A lady in our church emailed me and said, Pastor Brad, I would love to come to the church every Tuesday from 3 to 5 and copy all your notes from old Bible to new Bible. What a gift. So this is a brand new Bible that should take me to glory. If the first one lasted 33 years, I think this will take care of me. Now, if I lost this, I would just fall in a weeping heap. So would she. <laughs> There'd be two of us crying now. <laughs> but I got my notes. I got my notes where I'm, I'm saying, oh, this verse goes with that verse. And look at this. This is a reflection of that. And you're building some systematic thing. And don't hear me. I hope you don't hear Oh, that's so cool that pastors live that way. Folks, I think Christians should live this way. I know you might not preach a sermon. You may not be responsible for Sunday school class. But you know what you're responsible for? Feeding your own soul and having enough biblical truth and a grid through which you are able to interpret commercials and all that you're reading and all that's coming at you and all that's being said at work and all that you're facing and all your trials. You desperately need to be doing everything I just described, not just pastors. And then... God just might also open a door for you to help somebody else. Lastly, practical theology. We want some practical theology, and here's where many times it stops short, and it's sad. Even on Bible college campuses and seminaries sometimes, this piece isn't there. In fact, it's reflected by the name, names of courses. The school that I went to had a practical theology class. You know what that meant? It meant that was the class where Dr. Earl McQuay taught us how to do funerals and baptisms and weddings, period. Oh, my. Guess what happened when I got graduated and got on staff at my first church? Was there something else going on besides funerals and weddings and baptisms? In between getting married and dying, there's a bunch of stuff going on. People are calling me with a, with a depressed wife and a rebellious teenager and somebody that's cutting. I don't know. They didn't say a word. 
I can help you get married and I can help you die well. In between, I have no idea. They didn't tell us nothing. It was like, I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know? And so that's why when I, when I saw the stuff you're going to go through these three weekends, it's not inspired. Please don't hear that. I said, where has this been? Where's this been? I, I've already been through Bible college. Silence. I'm in my last year of the MDiv seminary with Greek and Hebrew, but none of this was taught to us. And yet when you get into the church, that is what untold hours of your time are spent doing with real people. Brian alluded to, to it when he introduced me. I like to say, wouldn't you like to know how to help a real person with a real problem using your Bible? Starting with you, right? We got, we're real people in a really hard world with real problems that come up. God's word has answers. So that last piece of practical theology, we need to think it through. What's the Bible say about abuse? What's the Bible say about depression? What's the Bible say about marriage and parenting? What's the Bible say about communication and relationships? And on and on and on and on and on and on. It's there. We want to solve problems biblically. Here's here's the gist for me of biblical counseling. We're not trying to just fix a problem. So a problem may bring somebody in and we want to help them know how to solve problems biblically. But in the process, here's what we're also having the opportunity to do. Help them to become God's kind of person. To grow in the relationship with God. Now listen, I'll readily admit, people do not come in wanting that. They want you to relieve the suffering. They want you to change the circumstances. They want you to get them out of this. They want you to, often they want you to just Wave some pixie dust and say, ah, you can get that on TV, but in real life, no. And so you have an opportunity. Whenever I'm counseling, I'm thinking two things. Here's the problem, and I want to help them, but here's an opportunity to make a disciple, right? If they weren't reading their Bible as much, I'm going to get them reading Scripture. If they weren't meditating on Scripture, I'm going to get them memorizing it. If they weren't even in a small group at close range with other believers, all these things have been impacting them. At the end of the day, when they graduate, I don't want them to just say, oh, I think our problem is better. I want them to be at a different place spiritually. A disciple who's moved on down the... And this is what's so exciting, that this is so transferable. So I've been, I've been here 20 years now, and I started doing biblical counseling a few years before I came here for this church plant. So many people that get help go on and help someone else. I love it. They don't, they don't call me. Some try, but they don't usually call me and say, Oh, Pastor Brad, I have a friend at work, and it's just like we were, and I told him you'd meet with him. No. But they'll say, Can you help me? What were those things? Here's what we're going to do. And I remember you used, da, 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 tell us again. It's transferable. This is encouraging. This isn't always the case when I teach. But tonight, the fellow who did my marriage counseling. So that's, some of you know my story. I didn't get excited about this because I saw a pamphlet like maybe you did. Or a friend told me about it like you did. I needed marriage counseling in that last year of seminary. I was like, Ooh, we need help. We're both saying the same thing. Not the same thing. Different. We're saying what we say over and over. I say what I say. She says what she says. I say what I say. I say, I say it louder. Right? And we said, let's get out. And we heard that there was a fellow doing biblical counseling in the foyer of our church in South Carolina. Not an office. They didn't give him an office. They gave him a furnace room where the furnace was with no heat and air ducts. And he stuck a ceiling fan in there and a dry board and shoved a desk. And he was doing counseling in there. We knew it. And if you wanted to meet with him, you had to sit on the pew in the foyer right there as everyone came in and out of the church. Hello, we need help. Yeah, I'm bad. Yeah, I'm next. I'm bad. So, yeah, you really had to be humble. So, there we sit. I'm like, oh. And once you wave your hand, Stuart, he's right back there. He's going to teach you next. Stuart Scott was in there. I, I kid you not, I think we met with him six times, eight times. I don't know. It wasn't much. Now, we were desperate. We were living in a mobile home. We had no money. We had two little kids, you know. And Stuart was trying to do this for a living. Like, you know, make a living doing this. So I think it was supposed to be $50 a session. He gave us 25 half off. Thank you, Stu, baby. 
half off. But we still had to get a babysitter. So as we're like, you know, we looked at each other and like, you know, don't drag this out. Whatever he says, repent. We can't afford, we can't afford for you to resist, okay? So don't resist. Whatever your part of the problem is, I mean, drop to your knees and repent in session one. Don't make him say it over and over. This is costing us money. We don't. I was making $10,500 a year. Yeah, as the youth and music guy. Not complaining. But wow. And what God did. I was like, oh, my goodness. And so that set me on a path of saying, I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to do this. This is amazing. And so then when I came here in 1996, I said, we're going to be a church that does this. So now we, we have, by God's grace, this is 20 years now, and I've been praying and fasting and working and, and, and leading the band, holding up the banner and saying, let's do this. We have 28 certified counselors, our church. And now we're at Counseling Training Center, and we do this conference. But it all began with a wife who was bad. No, it all began <laughs> with a bad marriage and a guy that needed someone to speak into his life and say what he was not hearing. But God did more than just help us in our marriage. Is that not encouraging? Isn't that like our God? It, he, he had a bigger plan for what he wanted to do. Few ministers and priests think theologically. Most of them have been educated in a climate in which the behavioral sciences, such as psychology and sociology, so dominated the educational milieu that no true theology was being learned. Most Christian leaders today raise psychological and sociological questions, even, even though they frame them in scriptural terms. Real theological thinking, which is thinking with the mind of Christ, is hard to find in the practice of ministry. It really is. Without solid theological reflection, future leaders will be little more than pseudo-psychologists, pseudo-sociologists, pseudo-social workers. They will think of themselves as enablers, facilitators, role models, father or mother figures, big brothers or big sisters, and so on. And thus join the countless men and women trying to help their fellow human beings to cope with the stresses and strains of everyday living. But that has little to do with Christian leadership. There's a call, and it's, it's much more prevalent than it was 30 years ago when I jumped into this camp. There is a call. For the, just like there was the Reformation where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the church door and said, Whoa, we are way off track with what justification by faith in Christ alone means. I feel like there's been a bit of a second Reformation where the church had completely let go of this whole area and said, we'll talk to you about salvation, but sanctification and your real life between now and heaven, we don't have anything to say. Go outside the church and find answers. And there's been a Reformation and some reclamation of the churches beginning to say, you know what? Maybe we're supposed to be doing things like this. Maybe we are supposed to be involved here. Maybe God's word does say something about this. Oh my goodness. The reason my wife... With, with joy releases me to travel and I'm gone maybe 12, 14 times a year to teach like this other places is because we both have a passion. What if the church of Jesus Christ and all the people who attend churches begin to be equipped and think, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be equipped to know how to help a real person with a real problem. My next door neighbor, my coworker, my son-in-law, my whoever at, at, at the gym that I just met instead of, oh, call my pastor, call my pastor, call my pastor, call my pastor. What might happen in the kingdom? And how the world might respect the church a little more instead of thinking, you preach a big God on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you act like, oh, we can't help you, we can't help you, we can't help you. We don't get into that. Here's a basic definition of biblical counseling. Didn't get this out of the Bible, but I think it's based on biblical principles. Biblical counseling is coming alongside someone with God's word, filled with the Holy Spirit, and giving hope and help from God's word. Staying with them long enough for them to experience lasting change from the inside out by God's grace and for his glory. Coming alongside someone with God's word. Filled with the spirit. And we want to give hope. We want to give real help from God's word. Staying with them long enough for them to experience lasting change by God's grace and for his glory. So what are some of the implications of this theological pyramid? Well, level, level six without levels one to five is not biblical counseling. So you don't just want to jump right in and try to get real practical and go after these things. We need the canon. We need hermeneutics. We need exegesis, biblical theology, systematic. 
But it's the same. So, and I already touched on this. Psychology is nothing more than suke lagos, a word about the soul. Here's a great word about the soul right here from our creator God. Another implication is levels one to five without level six is incomplete. If you don't ever get there and get practical, one of the number one complaints that I hear and I sensed it growing up in the church is so much of the preaching and teaching did not get practical enough. And so I'm constantly, I was taught, I I actually have a Bible teaching degree, not a preaching degree. I intended to teach in the classroom kids' Bible. You can see how old I am. That doesn't exist anymore. The public school used to have that. I was going to teach in Tennessee or Florida. And so if you're going to teach kids, you better be thinking, yeah, but how? And so in the sides, margins of my lessons, I always put Y-B-H. doesn't matter what you're saying, but how? How? How would I put that into practice? What would that look like? Too often our teaching and preaching does not get practical enough. 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. It matters what, what we believe, and it needs to be based on God's word. Matthew 7 says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man. So the house or the life or the ministry built on the rock is one that is not just hearing God's word. Oh, listen, you can go to a good Bible teaching church and you can know Bible, know Bible, know Bible, know Bible, know Bible, know Bible, and still not be on the rock. Because Matthew 7 says, both heard. Have you ever picked up on that when you read that? Both heard the word. The distinction between sand and collapse and rock was this one, and I love how the NIV says it, put it into practice. Very often you're coming alongside someone. I rarely have people that are like, they don't know. I don't know. I don't know nothing. Often they're in our church and they claim to be a Christian. They've been a Christian for years. What's their problem? Not that they don't know. They're not putting it into practice. And so you're coming alongside them, helping them to put this into practice. The message paraphrase says, work these words into your life. So what are some questions I need to ask? Is it possible that some of what I'm doing in level six isn't firmly grounded in levels one to five? It could be. That's why I want to always, it doesn't matter how many other books I read every year, I want to be reading this book. So that this one guides me and gives me the discernment for all others. Is it possible that you've not put sufficient amount of effort into developing one to five? And even as an ordinary, normal believer, you should be doing some of this. I want want to grow some more in how I understand Scripture, how I interpret Scripture. What's the Bible all about? There are all kinds of good books out there that are like, what's the Bible all about? What's the big theme? Or what's the theme of each book? And it gives you a good summary. Those ought to be books that you read every now and then, not just pastors. If we want to do practical theology and help people actually change and grow, one of the best things you could do at least is do some greater study on those passages in the Bible that are actually aimed right at change. How do people change? Yeah, but how do people change? Romans 6, 7, and 8, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, James 1 and 4, Galatians 5. You might make those some of your go-to passages that you say, for a lifetime, I'm going to keep coming back to those one more time. I mean, Romans 6, 7, and 8 is glorious, But I still, on a regular basis, will do a little more study and say, I want to understand that better. Those are not three easy chapters, but they're focused on change. What what happened to us when, when, when Christ came into our lives? And because he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Those are deep and yet life changing chapters that I can study again and again and again. There are people who read their Bible, love their Bible, have their Bible in the counseling room. But it doesn't mean they're doing biblical counseling. Is it the foundation? Is it the basis on which they're making decisions? Or is it just a hood ornament? Oh, yeah, 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 it's biblical counseling. All right, we don't want it to be a hood ornament. We want it to be the basis, the foundation. Number two, what makes biblical counseling biblical? When it recognizes the Bible as sufficient. What makes a particular counseling model biblical is when it recognizes the Bible as sufficient. Now, what I mean by that is that, and I know there may be differences in the room, but someone can say, oh, there's some good stuff in the Bible. But here's how it's often worded by well-meaning Christians. But the Bible in no way addresses the deep issues, and their voice kind of changes, deep issues of the heart. 
I don't think that's true. And I would not talk that way about the Bible. Now, am I saying the Bible in explicit detail addresses every issue that people are struggling? All you got to do is go to the index. In the, in, in it's, it's A to Z, B, bulimia. Oh, wonderful. Ezekiel 7 addresses that whole eating disorder. No. And I'll be honest with you, on, a, on an earthly, fleshly level, I wish it did. You know, there's these things that we do think about God, right? I hope I'm not... You got to think them too. Like, God, this could have been designed better, okay? Like, like, if you want us to use this, just put all the parenting stuff together. It's like a book called Parenting. In fact, have your preschool book and your... Because it's quite different. Your teen book. There ought to be a fat book on teen book. Young adult book. They're back. They're in the basement. What do I do? Do I give them money? Do I not? Do I help them? Do I boot them out? Like, what do I do? And yet, Scripture says He's given us all things pertaining to life and God. There are principles. Don't hear me saying it's all spelled out. But that's why you got to read it all and begin to see, all right, I trust you, God, that you gave us what we need. And there are principles here. I want to wreck. So don't hear me saying I can't reach outside of Scripture and learn something from someone else in a field of whatever. But let's not talk as if Scripture is inadequate. It falls short. It has to be helped by something else. I may be helped by something else. And I may be piqued and stirred and informed in some ways by something else. That would only enable me to better understand what scripture says about that. The world does a great job, by the way, of diagnosing problems. They just often do a very poor job with what the, what the solution is. I want to find my solutions from Scripture. I may learn how hurting people are and really what's going on from much of the research that they've done. But I do not want to treat the Bible as insufficient. You know, it sounds like this. Yeah, the Bible's good, but. Yeah, but. See, there was the the battle with liberals over the issue of inspiration. I'm old enough that 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 was the rage in the 70s. Is the Bible inspired? Is it inerrant? The battle with neo-evangelicals on the issue of inerrancy. But I think today, the last 20 years, the, the biggest battle has been over sufficiency of Scripture. Is it sufficient? And more and more, I am seeing churches turn to, and, and recognize, ah, I think it is. I don't know how to handle it, but I think it is. Even we're part of a, a network of evangelical free churches of over 1,000 called the K-Club. And I kid you not, I've been going 14 years. And when I bring up biblical counseling, it's a showstopper, just Go ahead and create an awkward moment, Brad. Say biblical counseling. Nobody wants to talk about it. Because they're not doing it and they're locked into Christian counseling or psychology or something else. For the first time in the last three years, some of these lead pastors of these churches are calling me now and saying, Brad, what is that thing you do? That's how how they talk about it. What is that thing you do? And how do you get this started? How do you do a counseling center? How do you decide who counsels who? You know why they're calling? Because what they've been doing is not working. They've done it long enough now that they're starting to see, ah, I won't name it, but there's a ginormous, and when I say ginormous, I mean 40,000 people church south of us that for the first time ever, they just said, we're going biblical counseling. Give us someone to lead the whole thing. Some significant person called me and said, just tell us who to hire, and we will hire him to turn this whole thing around because we've been living in the land of bizarre Christian counseling so long now and we're not seeing people really get help. We want to do biblical counseling. That's right. That's the Lord affirming that. Huh? Oh, my. Yeah, right there. For those of you that are touchy-feely, that's the butterfly that just landed on the flower and I know my mother's okay. That's one of those moments right there. For those of you that live in that kind of land, that's what that meant. It's not the Bible plus Freud and plus dreams and psychology and Skinner and Rogers and karma. Second Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he's granted to us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Why do we need to let the Bible be the basis? And why do we need to treat it as sufficient? Well, because of the effect of a thinker's presuppositions. As we think, I hope you recognize, our thinking has been affected by sin. You don't think with a pure, unaffected mind. 
the, presuppos- the very presuppositions we put together are, are tainted often with the sin problem that we have. The Bible must have active, functional control, even to the degree a concept is emphasized in a model. Whatever I'm emphasizing, I ought to be a little unsure if I'm thinking I'm making much of something that the Scripture says nothing of or very little about. I, I want to be careful. Don't hear me saying... I mean, just like VBS, the Bible doesn't say VBS, but we do VBS. So I know there's things the Bible doesn't mention that we might do. So there may be, you know, like couch time. That's something I got from Ezo, and I use it in counseling. You know, I want you to do couch time this week. Three times, 20 minutes, not fighting about something. Just, I'm not saying there's a Bible verse for that. But I'm saying significant ways that you're trying to help people. By and large, I want to know, do I find that? Often in Scripture. Is that model emphasized in Scripture? Thirdly, how do I know when biblical counseling is truly biblical? What what makes it biblical? When it can be derived and understood by any growing believer. This is one of my greatest joys with biblical counseling, folks. It's not rocket science. Is it scary? Yes. Do you feel like throwing up? Yes. You know, I feel like in our resource center, we shouldn't just have all these good books. There ought to be these little counseling airsick bags, you know, where you just think, oh. The more you hear as you sit there in your living room listening, you just thought, you know, because people never tell you the whole thing. They're just like, hey, can we get together? We're having some communication problems. And then you get together, it's like, oh, no, he dresses like a woman, and their child's out of control, and they're bankrupt, and he beats her, and, oh, I think I'm going to throw up. Excuse me. And you're like, <laughs> go ahead. I want to keep looking hopeful, but I've got to throw up. It's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I still get scared. I still think, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And that's okay. Because it makes you dependent on him who does. I don't ever want to say, oh my goodness, I've been doing this 30 years. Yeah, bring it. You call that a problem? No, make it more gnarly than that. I mean, yeah, bring me another one. No, I'm saying, God help me. Each person's an individual. I don't know, I can't see the heart. But would you by your spirit help me help them? But listen, I love this because it it can be used and it can be helpful to every growing believer. And now, some will be better than others, right? Just like every other gift in the church. But I think if you say, well, Brad, what's this gift? You know, when you go to 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or Romans, when you see gifts listed, where, where is this biblical counseling gift, folks? I think it's exhortation. Exhortation. Exhortation is when you come along. It's not a sermon. You don't preach a sermon at somebody. You ask questions. You listen well. You ask more questions. And you give hope. And you speak some truth to their issue. And then you hold on to them long enough to help them see how this works out in their life. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Growing believers. Just like I believe there's a gift of evangelism. There's some people that wake up and eat evangelism for breakfast. I just, I just want to talk to a lost person. Does every believer feel that way? No. But should we all do evangelism? Here's the same deal, folks. What if the church of Jesus Christ began to realize just like I'm supposed to do what I can to get the word about Jesus and the hope of the gospel out, whether it's my gift or not. I'm supposed to know how to help people with real problems and some may be better at it than others, but I'm going to do it to some degree and I'm going to keep trying to get better at it just like I hope to get better at evangelism because I'm a Christian. This is what Christians do. Somebody say amen. Yeah. Oh, it would change the church. And we might see the church impact our culture more. Biblical counseling does not have a Gnostic flavor. Now, that's another big word. But Gnosticism was the problem when Paul was writing to the Christians at Colossae. And it's this thing that, that you know, it still exists today. It's this higher understanding. And, ooh, we're on a different level. We're into dreams and angels and such. It doesn't have a Gnostic flavor, biblical counseling. It's like, here's God's word, Holy Spirit living inside of you, growing and changing, other believers helping you, you helping. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You comfort others with the same comfort with which you have been comforted. Another affirmation right there. Biblical counseling produces an increased confidence on the part of qualified believers. Because your confidence is not in you. Oh, Mark, mark this down in your notes there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's my all-time favorite. My confidence is not in me passage. 
where he says not that we're adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Not just elders and deacons and pastors and youth pastors and missionaries, but every believer is a minister of the new covenant. And you have direct access to your high priest, the Holy Spirit. You have every bit as much of the Holy Spirit as an ordained minister of Jesus Christ. Resurrected Jesus lives in you and you have his word. And you are a minister of the new covenant. Will there be times that you think, oh my goodness, I can't handle that one. Sure. But some of your hardest moments with people is a chance for you to grow and dig and study some more. And please know, it is appropriate at times to say, you know what, I think someone else could help you better. Because I get asked people, like, does your church get into, and they'll name really hard stuff. Granted, there are people at different levels of ability. So there's, there's an appropriate place to say, you know what, let me see if I can find someone else that I think could help you more, that maybe has walked through this before, or understands this better. There'll still be a place for that. But folks, just punting on everything, which is what most Christians think. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not a pastor that is killing the church of Jesus Christ and is disobeying what God's word tells us. You are called to be an ambassador. Read 2 Corinthians 5. Move on from 3 to 5. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ as though God were pleading through you, be reconciled to him. We're all supposed to be Helping people and pleading with people. And here's the hope that you have, folks. You're not on your own. I love 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Number four. What makes biblical counseling biblical? When it's elastic enough. To grow with the counselor's understanding of Scripture. Don't hear me saying Scripture is elastic like silly putty and it it means one thing this year and something the next year. But you understand what I mean. I hope that, isn't it amazing sometimes where you, especially if you've read the whole Bible, there'll be these times where you're like, oh my goodness, I know I've read this before, but today, woo, this is right where I am and I'm at a different place and I have a greater understanding about something else now and so this has greater meaning People ask me all the time, Brad, if I was just to buy one book, besides the Bible, make sure you got a good Bible, besides the Bible, there's so many counseling, even biblical, there's so many biblical counseling books now. Buy Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand by Paul Tripp. People in need of change, helping people in need of change. Ah, that's the book we've used with our small group leaders and He has the tone I'm looking for that I appreciate of warmth and grace and mercy and a commitment to God's word. And what I like about Paul Tripp, he's, he's not just give them a Bible verse. He's good about give them the context, give them a passage. Again, he's big on you need to know biblical theology, the big picture. The appendices in the back alone are worth the price of the book. Great appendices in the back of that book. As we head into these three exciting weekends, I hope that you'll be thinking, all right, What makes biblical counseling biblical? And I hope you heard it's a whole lot of this right here. I'm glad for the pamphlets and the booklets and all the other resources. But folks, this is what we use more than anything else. And this is what needs to be going on in my life more than anything else for me to be effective in helping someone else. Now here's also an amazing thing, especially if you're in my church family. Brad Bigney just ended three minutes early.